Today's special episode is by Dr. Kaylee Alexander. Dr. Alexander earned her PhD from the Department of Art, Art History, and Visual Studies at Duke University in February 2021. Specializing primarily in 19th century visual culture, Cayley's research interests include funerary material culture and the cultural economics of death and burial in France and the United States. She currently serves on the board of the Association of Historians of 19th Century Art and is an editorial board member for the Collective for Radical Death Studies blog. Today, Dr. Alexander will talk about death, burial, and conflicts over art in Parisian cemeteries. In February 2021, Art News published an article lamenting the impending removal of the beloved Constantin Brancusi sculpture from the cemetery of Montparnasse in Paris. The sculpture in question was the 1909 version of the kiss that was erected over the grave of Tatiana Rushkevskaya, a Russian student who had committed suicide in 1910. The kiss, a version of which was exhibited at the International Exhibition of Modern Art, also known as the Armory Show, in 1913, is one of Brancusi's most well-known works and was produced in a number of versions, both limestone and plaster. The first version was produced in 1907 and presently resides in the collection of the Craiova Art Museum in the artist's native Romania. Significantly more geometric than naturalistic in form, the various versions of the kiss depict an increasingly abstracted and symbolic representation of a couple locked in a romantic embrace. The Montparnasse cemetery version had been placed over Reshkevskaya's grave shortly after her burial by her lover, a Romanian doctor by the name of Solomon Marbet, who had purchased the work directly from Brancusi. For over a century, the kiss has been a popular highlight for tourists visiting the cemetery of Montparnasse in Paris's 14th arrondissement. But the beloved sculpture has been off view, so to speak, since 2017, when it was covered by a simple wooden box presumably the result of the legal battles that have surrounded the sculpture for nearly a decade. The battle for the sculpture's ownership arose when the descendants of Rashevskaya tried to reclaim the sculpture and were contested by cemetery officials who claimed that it was a piece of cemetery property due to its status as an object of cultural patrimony. After nearly a decade of legal battles, the court ruled in December of 2020 that it was indeed the property of the descendants and not the property of the cemetery. This decision relied on an interpretation of the law as to whether or not the sculpture had been intended as a grave marker. If yes, it was legally the property of the descendants. As someone studying the impermanence of burial and funerary monuments in the Parisian cemeteries, this story really piqued my interest. In fact, the Art News article came out just a couple of days before my doctoral defense, and so it seemed too timely not to weigh in on this issue. The cemeteries of Paris, and particularly places like Montparnasse, Père Lachaise, and the cemetery of Montmartre, are often regarded more as these open-air museums where one can encounter great works of 19th and early 20th century sculpture. They make appearances in nearly every guidebook for Paris, not to mention the countless guidebooks dedicated to just the cemeteries. When you arrive at the entrance to one of these spaces, you're met with a map showing the locations of all the highlights for the cemetery. 
not unlike the clearly marked signs of the Louvre Museum that take you right to the Mona Lisa or the Venus de Milo. The fact that these sites are burial grounds seems almost secondary when we visit them and talk about them today, and yet millions of people have been buried in places like Père Lachaise since its opening in 1804. The case of the Brancusi sculpture was particularly striking to me, because French burials and their accompanying monuments were very rarely intended to be permanent structures in the first place. The Brancusi probably shouldn't have even been there as long as it has, since Rashevskaya does not seem to have been buried in a perpetual plot. In fact, very few people were ever buried in perpetual plots, which accounted for less than 6% of all burials in the 19th century and had been eliminated in the 1920s. So like so many others in France, Rashevskaya's grave in Montparnasse was only ever intended to be a temporary resting place. For Americans in particular, the idea of temporary burial typically comes as a shock. We are accustomed to purchasing burial plots where our remains are intended to rest in perpetuity. Or at least that's a myth that we're sold, and of course there are countless examples of cemetery abandonment and exhumation in the U.S. for a variety of reasons that we won't get into here. For some reason, however, we're not supposed to consider that we might be dug up one day. Whereas in France, and many other countries for that matter, the temporary nature of burial is something that comes with the territory, so to speak. And burial in France has really never been anything but temporary, except in rare cases where either the deceased or the funerary marker has been granted some status as an object of cultural patrimony. But to begin to understand the trouble with French cemeteries and the irony of the Brancusi in Montparnasse, we have to go back to the end of the 18th century. By the end of the 18th century, the burial situation in Paris had become so dire that the cemeteries were seen as a significant threat to public health. The churchyard, and none more famously, or infamously I should say, than the centrally located Cemetery of the Holy Innocents, had become so overcrowded that the recently deceased could no longer be sufficiently buried, and the noxious odors emanating from the churchyard were blamed for a variety of troubles. In February of 1780, a series of incidents provoked what one medical professional called a most considerable alarm. A fresh burial pit had been dug in the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents along the wall that paralleled the Rue de la Lingerie, and the stench had become nearly unbearable. Reports of spoiled wine and mysterious illnesses were attributed to the foul smells emerging from the cemetery, which after centuries of overuse had become so severely overcrowded and exhausted. Founded in the 12th century, the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents was, by this time, serving the populations of 20 different parishes as well as the nearby hospital and jail. So many people had been buried there that some accounts even claimed that the ground level had been raised by some 8 feet since the cemetery's founding. The threats and smells of the cemetery, however, were nothing new in 1780, although the opening of this new pit would prove to be the final straw. In the following May, a portion of the cemetery wall collapsed into one of the neighboring houses, spilling corpses into the cellar, and this incident would ultimately prompt the end of churchyard burials in France. The immediate result of this gruesome situation was that all of the churchyards within the city of Paris were, by royal decree, closed to all future burials. In 1786, the city would begin the process of removing the cemeteries and transforming these spaces for public use. The Cemetery of the Holy Innocents, for example, became a prominent marketplace, 
and is today a popular public square known as the Place Joachim de Belay. The remains that were exhumed from Paris's churchyards were transferred to the abandoned medieval quarries beneath the city over the next few decades. These quarries would, by 1809, become known as the Catacombs of Paris, a portion of which has been a popular tourist destination since the final decades of the 19th century. Although various temporary solutions to the city's burial troubles would be proposed and implemented throughout the 1780s and 90s, it would not be until 1804 that a more permanent burial solution would be set into law. On June 12th of that year, Napoleon issued his imperial decree on burials from the Palace of Saint-Cloud, also known as the Decree of 23 Prairial, Year 12, according to the Republican calendar. This decree instituted a highly regulated system of burial throughout the French Empire that, with relatively few changes over time, has remained the legal foundation of French burial practices to this day. A key aspect of this decree was the prohibition on burials within public buildings or within any city limits. Thus, new cemeteries needed to be established beyond the city, and those already existing at a proper distance from urban areas needed to be altered to comply with new burial standards. These new burial standards included a provision that all burials take place in separate plots with standard sizing, and that each plot remain untouched for at least five years. This meant that everyone, regardless of class or religion, would be entitled to an individual burial plot. And this was really in stark contrast to the mass graves that had been typical of the early modern period for the majority of French citizens. And yet, despite what may seem like a democratic system of burial being established, it's really important that we remember that burial was only entitled for a period of five years, unless one purchased a concession. Initially issued in just two options, temporary or perpetual, concessions transformed graves into private territory for a set period of time. Therefore, those of some means could afford to purchase a temporary concession, while high-status individuals could purchase plots intended originally to last in perpetuity. The price difference was pretty substantial, meaning that only a very small fraction of Paris's population would have ever been able to afford a permanent resting place. Thus, the vast majority of burials and their attendant monuments were already from their conception meant as temporary structures. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code FRENCHHISTORY50, 
Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. So before we can even begin to talk about funerary monuments in famous cemeteries like Montparnasse or Père Lachaise, it is critical that we first understand survival bias and its relationship to the cemetery. And survival bias is the logical error that comes from concentrating on people or things that have passed through some sort of selection process and as a result overlooking those that didn't. In the case of French cemeteries, survival bias results largely from this concession system in which only the tombs of the most elite could have ever attained a perpetual status. This has resulted in a heavily curated cemetery that indeed functions more as a museum than a final resting place, where some works, mostly those of the elite or those tombs deemed culturally significant, are carefully preserved while others are quietly deaccessioned from the collection. But what are these works that have been removed en masse from the cemetery over the past 200 years? Who made them and whose graves did they commemorate? Although we tend to know a lot about the sculptors and architects who have left their mark in the cemeteries of Paris, very little is known about those who produce tombstones for the middle and lower segment of the funerary monuments market. Much of this overlooked history of the funerary stonecutter, or marbrier, as they are known in French, is due to both the systematic removal of these markers for expired tombs over time, as well as the stigmatization of the Mabrier that began already in the first decades of the 19th century. Part of what the Napoleonic Decree on Burials of 1804 did was radically transform how non-elites were buried. Because everyone now had the universal right to a distinct burial plot, their loved ones were also granted the freedom to mark those graves in whichever way they saw fit and could afford. So what we see at the beginning of the 19th century is a significant increase in the demand for funerary monuments, especially among those who prior to 1804 would most likely have ended up in a mass grave. Not surprisingly then, we also see a rapidly developing market for affordable tombstones during this time. Ironically though, as more people gain the ability to purchase funerary monuments, distrust and resentment towards the Mabrier who produced those monuments, and even towards his middle-class clients, grew. In 1853, a police ordinance cited how Marbrier were known to follow people to town halls as they went to declare deaths or to stalk mourners in churches and cemeteries hoping to offer their services to them. And so the ordinance of February 4th of that year enacted a prohibition against Marbrier that prevented them from advertising to mourners in public space. The ordinance was ultimately the culmination of nearly a half-century of mounting concerns over the predatory behavior of the Mabrier. But already by the 1830s, the Mabrier had become an unlikable character. Reflecting the concerns that ultimately led to that 1853 ordinance, satirical depictions of the Mabrier continually cautioned the public against his manipulative practices and insensitive nature. Likewise, the monuments he produced were criticized for profaning the cemeteries of Paris. One of the earliest and most likely the most widely disseminated images of the Mabrier from this time comes from the caricaturist Honoré Daumier, who famously uh, produced lithographic works critiquing various aspects of Parisian life. Daumier's version of the funerary Mabrier, which was included in his 1836 work Caricaturana, also appeared publicly in an 1837 issue of the satirical journal Le Charivarie. Casting the Mabrier as the archetypical swindler Robert Macaire, Daumier titled his print 
un homme sensible à juste prix, a sensitive man at fair prices. And in this scene, he establishes the Mabrier as one who seeks to improve his own status by preying on the grieving to make a quick sale. Clenching a handkerchief in one hand and an invoice in the other, Daumier depicts the Mabrier coming to pay his respects to a grieving mother, who, judging by the interior furnishings of her home, is a woman of some means. Beneath the image, the following dialogue has been included to frame the scene. The Mabrier begins, Alas, madame, you have had the misfortune of losing monsieur, your son. And she responds, Ah, monsieur. He cuts her off. What do you expect, madame? We are all mortal. He was such an honorable man, monsieur, your son. And she goes, A child of four years, so beautiful, so nice. But monsieur, to whom do I have the honor of speaking? And the Mabrier responds, Madame, I am a Mabrier, and I have come to offer you a mausoleum. I make them at all prices, and, as I strongly sympathize with your grief, I would be very glad to work with you, Madame. And then the dialogue is concluded with the statement, He is shown the door. Here, Daumier derides the Mabrier, who unapologetically jumps at this opportunity to advertise his services to those in the most vulnerable of positions, even a grieving mother. The Mabrier's intrusion in this family matter is all the more problematic given this intimate setting that Daumier has placed them in. The scene does not take place at a cemetery or a church. This is in the family home. And the mother is still in her nightdress. Overcome with grief, she is somewhat slow to realize the Mabrier's true intentions, as if still in shock of the death of her son. One imagines that not so much time has even passed between the boy's death and the Mabrier's visit. The Mabrier was also a recurring character in brief written vignettes of Parisian life, published in satirical journals such as the Journal Amusant. Pierre Veron, the then editor-in-chief of the journal, included the Mabrier on at least five different occasions in his column, uh, which was called Parisian Chronicles. In one example from the October 14th, 1876 issue, the narrator is walking through the neighborhood of the cemetery when he overhears a female Mabrier chatting with her daughter. Well, yes, said the mother, you will have a dress to go to the ball, but alas, All Saints Day needs to provide. And of course, bearing in mind that All Saints Day is typically the most busy time of the year for Mabrier even today, the woman is of course implying that they need to wait for a more successful business time of year before they can afford to buy that new dress for the ball. And in yet another example from the October 2nd, 1897 issue, the narrator is reminded of the time that he was walking in the vicinity of Montparnasse Cemetery, and he overheard a Marbrier chatting amongst his friends. One of the friends asks, Well, and your daughter, is she not getting married? And the Marbrier responds, Alas, no. I had counted on a cholera outbreak to finish off a nice dowry for her, but unfortunately epidemics are becoming so rare. And the narrator then adds that after this remark, the Mabrier seemed as though he might even burst into tears. As much as the Mabrier was cast as this sort of self-interested character, the monuments that he produced were also of questionable taste. One satirist noted how funerary monuments could even be used to advertise the businesses of the living. Though he was writing in jest, these types of inscriptions were very real, and we have evidence for them. 
Records for the tomb of Adelaide Roussel, for example, who died in 1814, account for her monument's inscription, which read, Here lies Adelaide Roussel, died May 17, 1814, age 21, wife of Le Tourneau, lemonade seller, Rue de Temple, at the corner of Rue Michel Le Comte. In such instances, the funerary monument became an opportunity to promote those left behind by placing more emphasis on the businesses that they ran, presumably the businesses that had paid for the monument that they were buried beneath. Negative characterizations of Mabrier and popular monuments didn't end there. They were also expressed in architectural volumes such as those produced by Jean Boussard and César Dali in the 1870s, emphasizing the genius of architects whom they saw as uniquely suited to designing appropriate funerary structures. These authors decried the developing popular market and the commercialization of the cemetery. While the cemetery had ostensibly been corrupted by commercial practices and these sort of selfish inscriptions that glorified the living more than they honored the dead, the increasing presence of architectural works was even proposed as a solution to the cemetery's moral decline, as well as to the delusion of class-based exclusivity by commercially produced and presumably off the peg rather than bespoke tombstones. Well, I could probably spend an entire another episode talking just about the conflict between the Mabrier and the architects. What I really want to point out is that despite the architects' emphasis that the Mabrier produced these sort of lackluster monuments that were basically cheap copies of whatever the architects were designing, the tombs that the Mabrier produced were actually very rarely ready-made works. They were in fact quite customizable, allowing for a variety of design choices at nearly any price point that could be catered to nearly any type of client, whether they were buried in a free five-year pit or even in a, a perpetual concession with a family chapel attached to it. And there's evidence for this in the handful of surviving sales catalogs and model books that Marbrier produced that demonstrate a clear ability to pick and choose different elements of a monument, adding some, removing others, in order to allow the client to get the most satisfaction from the design of the monument, but also still meet the constraints of their individual budgets. And it is really driving home this discussion of what the Mabriers produced, despite what little evidence we have today, that my current work is dealing with. And so that kind of brings us back to where we started with the Constantin Brancusi sculpture that everybody is all up in arms about being removed from the cemetery of Montparnasse, despite the fact that we know millions of monuments have been removed over the past 200 years with very little controversy or upset. Burial records available for the Archives of Paris indicate that Rushkevskaya was buried in Montparnasse on December 13, 1910, in a fosse, so a, a pit, uh, rather than a caveau, which typically indicated a perpetual plot. So we can assume that her grave was never meant to be a long-lasting one. And yet the presence of the Brancusi sculpture as her tombstone has, at least thus far, protected her gravesite from removal. Whether or not Rushkevskaya's plot will remain intact once that Brancusi gets removed, I would imagine would also be up for debate. The irony of this situation is, of course, that monuments and the dead have always been removed from cemeteries like Montparnasse on a regular basis. We just don't seem to care unless that monument has a name like Brancusi attached to it. 
And so on that note, I'd like to leave you with one just small piece of advice. The next time that you take a trip to Père Lachaise or any of the other major cemeteries in Paris, sure, definitely make sure to tick off those famous graves on your list. But I'd also ask you to take a moment to just consider all of the history and the monuments that we're not seeing today in these spaces. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode... We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.